Welcome to the Farm Bits podcast. Farm Bits is proudly produced by the Nebraska Digital Agriculture team and hosted by students at the University of Nebraska. The Farm Bits podcast comes to you each week to discuss the trends, the realities, and the value of digital agriculture. Through interviews with experts, producers, and innovators from across the agriculture uh, industry, we hope that you step away from each episode with new practical knowledge of digital agriculture technology. Hello, FarmBits followers, and welcome to another episode of the FarmBits podcast. I'm Katie Bathke. And I am Victor Ferreira, and we are glad to have you with us as we begin our discussion on special cropping systems on the Central Coast with Dr. Michael Kahn. Welcome to another episode of the FarmBits podcast. Today, we'd like to welcome Dr. Michael Kahn to this episode of FarmBits, and I'm going to start with the first question. Could you introduce yourself, sharing your background up until where you are now? Yeah, as I mentioned, my name is Michael Kahn. I um, am a farm advisor with the University of California Cooperative Extension. I'm based out of uh, Salinas, California. I serve a number of different counties on the central coast of California, principally uh, Monterey, uh, San Benito, and Santa Cruz counties. Uh, and share. Uh, I'll share a little background about myself. Uh, I was an undergraduate student at UC Davis many years ago and majored in soil and water science. And then from there, I uh, went to graduate school at uh, Cornell University in agronomy. Uh, spent a little time uh, during my PhD doing some international ag uh, in Brazil, in the Amazon. And then from there, uh, I had a postdoc in the Midwest in the 90s, uh, working um, at the University of Illinois. We worked a lot on the merging uh, precision agriculture at the time. That's used now a lot in the Midwest. And then from there, I uh, took a position as a farm advisor in, in California, working in vegetables. Um, vegetable production in Northern California, and then later transferred uh, down into the Central Coast area, specializing in irrigation and water resource management. So I, I've been working in extension, I think I'm going on my 29th year. Wow, that's an awesome background. Yeah. So yeah, I've been fortunate to see lots of different types of agriculture and and uh, although, uh, you know, I, you know, I'm an extension person because uh, California is sort of a important place for specialty crops, we often get asked to do, you know, international consulting. So through my career, I've gotten to travel to a lot of different countries too. What is your area of expertise? Yeah, as I mentioned, uh, be irrigation and water management. And I work on water quantity issues. So how to use water as efficiently as possible. And then water quality, how do you protect uh, water quality, especially the impacts of agriculture on water quality. Mm -hmm. So that brings me into um, you know, mitigation strategies to remove pesticides uh, out of uh, runoff that we would have, uh, especially irrigation runoff. But also um, 
nutrient issues because on the central coast, we rely principally on groundwater for all of our irrigation as well as drinking water. And so the intensive use of nitrogen fertilizers has uh, over the years contaminated groundwater to nitrate. So we're working a lot with growers on how to use nitrogen more efficiently. I think you have the same issues in Nebraska too. Yes, I love that you bring that up because that is what a lot of my my personal research focuses in is groundwater issues caused by nitrogen, caused by agriculture, and I think is a big focus for the University of Nebraska. So I really love that you're joining us with the podcast today so we can dive into that a little bit. You also have mentioned that you specialize in a variety of crops, and since this season is all about specialty crops, we kind of want you to emphasize what type of crops you do specialize in. Well, uh, the area where I work is known as the salad bowl capital of the U.S. So anything in your salad, except the tomatoes and cucumbers, <laughs> we're producing on the central coast here, you know, all the leafy greens. So, um, and then all, uh, what we call cool season vegetables, basically. So all the brassicas, uh, cauliflower, cabbage, broccoli, you know, the, those um, uh, vegetables, um, you know, artichokes comes right from our area. Uh, so, and lettuce, you know, we're producing probably 80% of the lettuce right now in, that you, you would be consuming throughout the U.S. Yeah, that's very nice information. Uh, yeah, among those uh, vegetables you mentioned, Dr. Ken, uh, which one has the great production cost and which one has a small production cost? I mean, like those accessible for small growers uh, that are just uh, planning to start or that already started. Let me um, back up a little bit because another commodity I work with or group of commodities are berries. So we, we're also producing a lot of the strawberries, uh, blackberries, raspberries that are being sold. You might know like Driscoll's, for example, is one of the companies in this area. And those crops have a very high production cost, you know, and, but you don't need a lot of acres to get involved, you know, with growing uh, berries. So we do see a lot of smaller growers, you know, starting out with, with berries as um, maybe the crop they get involved with. And, um, but we also see uh, growers, you know, new growers uh, getting involved with vegetables in relation to selling them at farmer's markets, usually. So they don't need a lot of acreage, they, but they grow a lot of different uh, vegetable crops. We have um, some programs here on the Central Coast to take people that might be uh, interested in getting into agriculture uh, and have no experience. And they might be farm workers even, and they can get training and learn about developing business plans and growing the crops. And, uh, and, and one of the institutions, ALBA, will actually uh, provide land for them to try their hand at, at growing crops and selling them 
Yeah, the vegetables, I would say less production costs, uh, but uh, to make more money, you need more, more uh, land areas. Yeah, no, I'd love that you bring that up. I feel like that really touches on agriculture accessibility. And I think that's a really important thing, especially for people who are not directly from the agricultural community. So I think that's really cool that you have programs like that out in California. And so we're going to kind of bring it back to, since you have a background in a variety of cropping systems on the West Coast, can we go a little bit into the concerns with resources, um, specifically uh, nutrient, water, soil for your area? Right. So you may know that in California, a lot of our water supply is from snowmelt up in the Sierras. And then we have a system of canals that move the water around the state. A lot of our precipitation is in Northern California, but a lot of the demand for water is in more in the Southern part of the state. And in, in agriculture um, areas, the South San Joaquin Valley, for example. Now we're out in the Central Coast, there's no canals that bring water to us. We have to be self-sufficient uh, in, in water supply. And so uh, what happens is we usually get winter storms. And you probably heard a lot about our winter storms this last year because of the flooding. And that was in the Salinas Valley. We have, uh, uh, you know, very little snow because our mountains aren't tall enough, but they're tall enough to... Um, squeeze a lot of water out of those storms and then that runoff um, you know goes into the Salinas River and hopefully a lot of it infiltrates into the groundwater and replenishes it but sometimes it's so intense uh, you know it causes flooding. We do have two dams um, and reservoirs in the southern part of the county that can hold some of that water back but then we have a lot of other streams that our, uh, our tributaries into the Salinas River, and we don't have any control over those flows. So, um, so this year, yeah, we got too much at once, uh, but that has this nice benefit of of filling up our reservoirs and uh, replenishing our our groundwater. Over the years, we've had um, some pretty severe droughts. Uh, the last uh, one, four years long. And close to the coast, due to pumping of groundwater, we have seawater intruding into our aquifers. So a lot of wells going salty. So that's a big concern. So we can't just, you know, irrigate with salty water. We have to find other water supplies. We can't bring it in from the Central Valley, because as I mentioned, there's no canal. So one of the ways we've been dealing with this uh, is using recycled water. So water from urban areas that you know is being processed at the uh, I guess the regional facility for wastewater treatment goes through a tertiary treatment and then goes gets treated uh, with chlorine to remove you know any bacterial contaminants. Uh, but then it goes out to the farms and we probably have, you know, four, well, all together on the central coast, about 17,000 acres uh, dependent on recycled water. So we're always trying to find creative ways and uh, 
uh, we have to also share the water with the urban areas. About 80% is used for ag and 20% for the urban areas. Uh, and so there's a, a tug of war about the water resources in that sense. But it's a it's maybe a bit different, you know, than you might have in the Midwest where you have rain events. I know Nebraska relies a lot on irrigation too. Yes, we do. So I really like that you bring in this regional aspect of that these resources that are necessary to really accomplish what agriculture is for is quite difficult, especially in areas and in production systems that are beyond just row cropping. So I, I like that you bring that perspective. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. So uh, like among those vegetables and those crops, uh, those special crops you mentioned, which one requests a greater input in general? I mean, nitrogen, water, uh, fertilizer in general. And is there like a management that you would potentially decrease the input usage? I would say in general, the shorter season vegetables, uh, they, they're very intensive in the amount of nutrients they use. So you take something like uh, spinach, 30 day crop. Uh, we plant it on uh, 80 inch or two meter wide beds, very, very high populations. This is, I don't know, I'm sure you've seen this at the store, the, bags of spinach, fresh spinach, they're nice and green and um, small leaves. So so we're not talking about a full plant, but just baby spinach. And we also have other baby greens, but they're all grown for very short periods of time. We have to um, make them look great, you know, so you want to buy them. Uh, and uh, and so they're intensively fertilized usually, and they have high uptake rates. About four to five, well, I would say three to four pounds of nitrogen per acre per day is what it's taking up. So uh, that's a lot of nitrogen, and and then you can try to grow those organically, but you have to put a lot of amendments in the soil to supply that or or usually we do top dress of uh, chicken manures, you know, so uh, they get, you know, uh, fertilized heavily. And I would say, you know, they're called leafy greens for a reason, they have to be green. And so it, that a key nutrient is nitrogen, you know, to do that. And so then, we don't harvest necessarily all the crop, but maybe you know 50% of it gets harvested and then there's residue, crop residue. And so those residues are high in nitrogen and uh, that nitrogen is returned to the soil. So the key is how can we keep that nitrogen you know, in the root zone so we can utilize it for the next crop? Because we might grow three leafy green crops a year. Um, lettuce, uh, if you're just talking about lettuce, that's like a 60 to 65 day crop. And uh, we'll grow at least two of those a year, you know, in each field. And so uh, what we've been trying to do is 
work with growers and understanding how much background level of nitrogen is in their soil and also in their irrigation water. So sometimes the irrigation water is so high in nitrate and they're not accounting for the nitrogen that's applied you know, through their irrigation. So that, that's a challenge too. Um, you know, it's other crops that are much slower growing. Say we grow uh, uh, kale through the winter time. It's out there for a long time. You don't need to intensively fertilize it. And in fact, uh, if you look at how much nitrogen is taken up by uh, kale that's grown sort of to full size, not baby kale, but you know those larger leaves that are harvested, it might take up 400 pounds of N per acre, but the growers only put on 200 pounds. It, and what is going on is it can get its root system really deep into the soil. Another one like that is Brussels sprouts which have become you know, more popular nationwide now due to some of these uh, chefs that are on TV showing you how to cook them. Uh, but uh, that's a nice crop. The roots will go down eight feet if you leave it out there long enough. And it's a long season crop. And, and uh, usually the growers are putting on less nitrogen than the crop takes up because it's so efficient at pulling uh, some of this nitrogen that's um, residing in the soil, maybe at deeper depths and, and sort of recycling it. So it's, if we can have these, these nice crop rotations, you know, where we have leafy greens, but then we have some longer season uh, vegetable crops, we can be a lot more efficient. So I always tell people eat more broccoli, Brussels sprouts and kale, it's good for the environment not just your health. I like that. I think we're going to transition this next question into talking about the nitrate leaching concern for California. And how can digital agriculture be incorporated for this concern? Yeah, certainly, uh, you know, probably just like with Nebraska, you're looking at doing good water management and good nutrient management together, right? And, uh, one difference, though, might be that we on the Central Coast have very small field sizes. We have a lot of variability in our fields, but our fields are managed um, in maybe 10 to 15 acre blocks, which is not the case usually for a lot of the uh, agronomic crops that are grown in the Midwest. And so, you know, the idea of spatially varying fertilizer is has not really taken off on the central coast because uh, our blocks are already quite small but we would like to manage each of those blocks more um, site specifically right so just think of uh, each one as like a management zone and uh, and so that could be done um, through various ways, you know, just better uh, irrigation scheduling, you know, using evapotranspiration data, uh, nutrient management through um, looking at the soil needs, the water, crop needs, you know, and, and managing that better. 
and uh, and a lot of training for the staff that manages all these fields. That's another difference is we use a lot of labor in our water and nutrient management. And a lot of the staff on the ground uh, is not well trained. Uh, so they they get the water, they get the pipes out, they put water on, but you never know exactly how much water they put on. Um, fertilizer, well, they have tanks, they fill them up, they put the fertilizer on, and uh, you hope they got the right amount on, but you're never quite sure. So just being more precise that way is, is really important. We use um, some drones, um, you know, in, in, in digital imagery, but the big question is like, how do you take that information and make a management decision? You know, uh, and I think in the Midwest, it's a little more straightforward where you have larger fields and you see zones where, um, you know, the crop is smaller or you have a different soil type. So it is a bit, I think, easier to make decisions about how to split up those large fields into zones. But we've already sort of set up our fields into management zones. I guess I never really realized that because, yeah, in the Midwest, everything is so much larger and we don't rely heavily on labor. We rely heavily on just equipment to run the way it's supposed to and to work the way it's supposed to through that season, through the irrigation and the and the fertigation and the nitrogen season. So I really like that you kind of bring that to the table and explain it in that way is that you have these smaller blocks and they're already essentially their own management zones. And I think that takes digital egg to a new perspective. It would be nice if we could automate some of that management. Yes. But it's complicated on large... A lot of these ranches, we have multiple wells. And underground, the wells are uh, linked together, you know, with main lines. And so you have multiple wells operating at the same time. You have drip irrigation going on. You have sprinkler irrigation. Maybe another area, you, you actually have furrow irrigation. And uh, each is, a, you know, needs different pressures. So it, it becomes really complicated. And one of the reasons we don't automate a lot of things is if we get a significant spike in pressure, for example, we might break a main line. And so you can imagine someone programs a valve and says shut off at this time, but the well doesn't uh, slow down, you know, and, and to get a spike in pressure, you break a main line, what happens? You have to shut down, not, you know, maybe a multiple wells until you fix that. And, you know, there's a lot at stake. Uh, usually a lettuce field is worth a lot of money. It's about, uh, you know, maybe $10,000 acre value. So uh, that's that's a big risk. And so we haven't been very successful in implementing automation in our irrigation systems. So that's something we have to work towards. And we have ideas on how we can do that better, but um, we sort of vary back and forth between 
dependency on labor and uh and their limitations and trying to be dependent on more automation and, and looking at the limitations of automation and there's you need sort of a hybrid you know after we looked into some of your research we found that pam a polyacrylamide is being used as a tool to reduce sediment of pesticides and nutrients runoffs could you kind of explain how this works and how that's used for your area yeah I should say, you know, I read about the work that was being done in the Northwest on polyacrylamide in furrow systems uh, done uh, at the USDA, I think in Idaho. And um, it was pretty amazing how clear the, wa the runoff water was when they put a little bit of PAM on the soil, you know. And so I started thinking, well, how does this work? And, you know, we read about it, and PAM is, uh, or polyacrylamide, polyacrylamide is a long-chain polymer. And it's a very specific type of polymer that you need to use for soil erosion control. It's, um, there's some anionic sites and cationic sites on, on these PAM chains, but uh, what's used in erosion control is, um, like net uh, anionic PAM. And so there's very specific ones that are approved for soil erosion control. And uh, it's a very large uh, chain molecule, a very simple molecule of carbon and nitrogen linked together with some oxygen on it. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think one you know, mole of PAM that we use for soil erosion might be uh, 10, 10 megagrams. You know, you know, we're, we're, we're table salt might be only, you know, 60 or 80 grams. I forget exactly the molecular weight, but it, it's, uh, in, in essence, just this huge, huge molecule like DNA, you know, but even simpler. And so it sort of grabs onto the soil particles and flocculates it out of the solution, you know, out of the runoff. Usually you need, um, you can't have too much uh, velocity in the runoff for it to work. It, there has to be a period where it slows down velocity so the flocculating sediment that it's carrying can drop out. Uh, so it's pretty amazing. Uh, the challenge with us is where we get runoff is with sprinkler irrigation. We have some soil types that um, have pretty low uh, infiltration rates due to soil crusting. And so the water looks like chocolate milk, you know, coming off the, the back end of the field. When, you know, so the research we did here was to look at how do you add PAM or use PAM effectively in sprinkler systems. And what we found was if we could inject it into the water at a low concentration, then essentially the water already has PAM in it and uh, any uh, soil that gets suspended uh, drops out very quickly. And we can, on average, uh, reduced, we reduced our um, sediment concentration by about 90%. So it looks very clear. And uh, so we use it in different ways. Over the years, I researched looking at it um, 
by injecting liquid emulsified PAM into the well water. You know, as the water comes out of the well, that is one practice, uh, but that emulsified PAM is, this liquid PAM is pretty expensive. So uh, more recently we've looked at just using the granular PAM and trying to get it into pressurized irrigation systems. And one way is we made, we developed an applicator that um, essentially has cartridges of PAM and the water spins around these cartridges, picks up a little of the PAM before it goes out into the field. And it works quite well. We, we've also gotten about 90% reduction in sediment suspension. So that, that's a good way. And then we have a ditch applicator. So when the water, uh, the runoff water goes off the field, it's carrying a lot of sediment. We actually have an applicator that senses, you know, what the flow rate is in the ditch and then drops PAM into the ditch at a rate to give us maybe a five part per million concentration of PAM in the water. And that will reduce the uh, sediment concentration by about 99%. Now, when we take out sediment, we also take out any pesticides that might uh, adhering to the sediments. And one group of pesticides are very, that uh, can be very problematic are the pyrethroids. They, they bind strongly to sediments. And so we effectively can take out 99% of the pyrethroids that would be on sediments and, and move downstream into public water sources. Um, we can take out any nutrients that adhere to sediments. So phosphorus is another one that's pretty important. And there's total nitrogen uh, that we can reduce. And so we get, um, you know, basically we can take what looks like um, a very dirty water supply coming off a field and make it look like a mountain stream. It's pretty dramatic and I'll, I'll send you a link, you know, so you can see. Um, so that, that's been um, you know, a very interesting project that we've been working on. And now, you know, we're trying to get that adopted by growers. That's very interesting. Here, like my for, my projects focused more in cover crops. So we're trying to, I would say, not convince producers mm -hmm. to adopt cover crops, but <laughs> still a challenge for us here as well. I like that it's you're seeing it being so effective. I think that's really cool. I like that. A big thank you to Dr. Michael Kahn for giving us insight to what agriculture looks like on the Central Coast. Tune in next week for part two as we learn more about his experience with software development for agriculture and his time as an extension educator. Thank you for taking the time to join us today on the Farm Bits podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts to be informed about the latest content each week. We welcome your feedback. So if you have comments or questions for us, please reach out to us over email on Twitter or in the review section of your favorite podcast platform. Our contact information can be found in the show notes. 
We would like to thank Nebraska Extension for their support of this podcast, their commitment to providing high-quality informational material to members of the agricultural community in Nebraska and beyond. The opinions expressed uh, by the hosts and guests on this podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the views of Nebraska Extension of University of Nebraska-Lincoln. We look forward to you joining us next week for another episode of Farm Bits.